The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are in John chapter 1. Uh, we have been uh, in the book of John for the last four weeks. Uh, and we're going to be, we're kind of taking our time through this, uh, through this book as a church. We like to make the main diet of our preaching series to be an exegetical. That means we like to walk through books of the Bible and, and get through them, um, letting God's Word really set the agenda for what they are all about. And this week we're in week four and we're looking at verses 10 to 13. And uh, what John the, the Apostle, John who's been writing this, has been doing for these previous nine verses is that he's been telling us about Jesus Christ. He's been telling us that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity, equal with God, eternally in relationship with God, and eternally God himself. He's been telling us that all things, all things were created through, through him, that true life is found in him, and that life that is found in Jesus is the light of mankind. It is the light by which we see the reality of life. It's how we understand reality. And then here in verse 10, the focus begins to shift to our response to him. Not directly, but enough to make us consider how we're going to respond to these massive claims about who Jesus Christ is, this man, Jesus Christ, that he's actually God. John's looking back at Jesus' life and ministry, and he's considering how people responded to him and how, in his day, people were continuing to respond to him. Some received him, and some didn't receive him. And this passage will bring us face to face with the reality that some people receive Jesus, and some people don't receive Jesus. We can either receive Jesus or we can reject Jesus. And this passage asks and answers the question, why is that? Why is it that two people can hear the exact same gospel proclaimed, and one, one of them will receive Jesus, and the other person won't receive Jesus? One will receive his kindness and his mercy and his love and they'll devote their lives to him. They will, be, they will devote their lives to becoming more and more like him and glorifying him with their life. The other person doesn't, but carries on with their life unchanged. Why is that? <clears throat> is it because one of them was born into the right kind of family? Where they, where they had the right kind of upbringing, the right kind of culture, where the right kind of place that they were raised in? Or is it because there's something that, about this person, about their personal makeup, that makes them more inclined to receive Jesus, to, more susceptible to the gospel? Is there a personality trait that makes them more open to Christianity? Or is it because that person had the common sense to choose Jesus? They saw the advantage of a life with Jesus Christ and of their own will, they chose Jesus. And John is going to say, no, no, no. None of those are the reasons why some people receive Jesus and some people don't. The reason why some people receive Jesus, John says, is because God has taken the initiative to extend his love and grace to them such that they receive it fully. They become his children and are born of him. And to make this point, John's going to begin 
by examining two groups of people. He doesn't compare them with each other so much, but he just walks through two groups of people. Uh, There's the world in general, and then there are God's people. So firstly, the world did not receive him. John says in verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. Now when he says that the world did not recognize him, he's not meaning everyone in the world because certainly some people did recognize him. Their eyes were open to the glory of Jesus. He means the world as a broad and general category of people. And John's point here is both ironic and sad. Even though Jesus was in the world which was created through him, the world had no idea who he was. The world did not recognize him. And it's at this point that I want to ask the question, why did John again mention the fact that the world was created through him? He's already said this in quite quite serious ways. He's already said very, very clearly, all things were created through him. Why is John repeating himself here? He's been emphatic about this. This sentence would have made perfect sense if John had just said uh, he was in the world and the world did not recognize him. But he doesn't say that. He says he was in the world which was created through him and the world did not recognize him. Why is that? And when we're reading through the Bibles and we come across a word or a phrase or a sentence that seems like it's a bit of a repetition, it seems redundant, it might seem a bit superfluous, it never is. It's, it's more often than not, it's the writer's way of drawing your attention to something and saying, pay attention to this. And this is what John is saying here. He's pointing out the irony that the world was created through Jesus, and yet the world had no idea who he was. Imagine an artist going to their own exhibition, and the people who are there to observe and admire the pieces on the wall that they've painted, they don't know who the artist is, they don't recognize him or her, they don't, they don't say, they don't point out who it is, and maybe this person isn't well-dressed, and they kind of shrug this random person off without realizing that they are there to admire his or her art. That's, that's what John's kind of saying here. And I want to linger on that word, yet. The creator was in the world, and yet the world did not know him. John's saying, there's a problem here. Because creation should have recognized the creator. We should have recognized the creator. There's a problem. If you go back to Genesis 3, it tells us that God would walk in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. The creator would walk through his creation, and the creation definitely recognized him. Adam and Eve knew exactly who he was, and when sin entered the world, they saw him coming, and they fled from him. Creation should recognize its creator, but we can't. He's saying the creator was in his creation, but the world had no idea who he was. We should have known as soon as God was on the earth. We should have known exactly who he was. We should have bowed down in worship. But there's a problem here. That's what this word, and yet, points us to. I saw a video recently of a man. He was walking the streets of London, interviewing different people, uh, asking them 
trivia questions about soccer and he found this old gentleman and he was asking him, hey, do you know the particular score of this particular Premier League final from way back when, like a couple of decades ago or something like that, three or four decades ago? And the old man thought about it and he said, yeah, I actually did know, that. I do know the score of that game. I played in that game. The man said, whoa, who are you? And he said his name and he was the goalie of one of the team, the team that won. And the man asking the question suddenly felt very, very little and silly because he's asking these trivia questions like, I've got the answers and here he is talking to the man on the field. The world should have known him. So why didn't the world recognize him? Well, John has already been answering that question in the opening verses. <clears throat> it's the darkness of sin. If we look earlier, we read, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Did not overcome him. It's the darkness of sin. If it's night, there's no light, it's cloudy night, and you can't see, and you run into a friend of yours, you probably won't recognize them because it's dark. And John has been, and he's going to continue to use this paradigm of light and darkness, day and night, to illustrate sin and Christ's conquering of sin. Sin makes our eyes dark. Since we are born under the curse of sin, we are unable to see the reality of things. We are unable to see the glory of God, and we are unable to see the wretchedness of our sin that has separated us from God. This is why John said previously that the light shines in the darkness. Jesus came to earth as the light to open our eyes to the reality of the glory of God and the darkness of our sin. The world had no idea that Jesus was God because the world had been blinded by the darkness of sin. And you and I have no hope of ever turning on the light or seeing well enough to recognize it. We need the light of Jesus to open our eyes. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and point us towards Jesus and say, this man, he is God. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. When I was a kid, um, my family and I attended a church called Inaugura Baptist Church. And we were really close friends with, these, with this family called the McPhersons. Uh, and uh, it was one of those situations where all the kids on both families lined up in age, so we just became good friends with those guys. Their dad actually was the uh, pastor at the time, and we were good friends with them, and then uh, my family and I, for, for whatever reason, left the church. I was just a kid at that stage, and then around eight or nine years passed, and I didn't see any of the McPhersons for, many years, for all that, that whole time. And when I was about 18 or 19 years old, I was a leader on a youth camp, and uh, I was sitting across in, in the bus, sitting across the aisle from this girl who was about 13, 14 years old. Um, we're having a bit of a conversation, and after a while she says, oh yeah, I attend Inaugura Baptist Church. And I was like, Inaugura Baptist Church? I used to go to Inaugura Baptist Church. Tell me, do you know the McPhersons? I haven't seen them in years. They were these really good friends of ours, and oh, you should know the McPhersons, because like, they're a pretty important family there. And she looked at me, she said, Jimmy, it's me, Michelle McPherson. And I was like, oh my goodness, I was sitting having this conversation with her. I had no idea who she was. I did not recognize her. But then the second she told me her name, it all made sense. She looked exactly like what four-year-old Michelle McPherson would have looked like if she was nine years old. And as soon as I saw that she was Michelle McPherson, I couldn't unsee that. 
it wasn't like I, I didn't look at her and go, oh, I can't really tell that. And then later on, I forgot that I had to be reminded. Every time I saw her, I'm like, that's Michelle McPherson. I haven't seen her since she was four years old. When Christ op- opens our eyes to the reality of God and the reality of our sin, and we see the reality through the lens of Jesus Christ, that he is God who put on flesh to come and remove our sins from us, we suddenly see him as he is, and we can't go back to unseen him. We need the light to shine into our darkness, and we have no hope of ever, ever understanding reality without that light. This is why John says that the darkness could not overcome him. Once our eyes are open to the reality of the glory of God and the good news of Jesus Christ, we cannot close our eyes to it. Yes, we may backslide. Yes, we may have times where we go through doubt and we walk away from God. But that door that God opens, no one can ever close. But not only did the world not recognize him, John says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is the second point. His own people didn't receive him. And this is perhaps the saddest thing of all. He came to his own people and they rejected him. In, in the Old Testament, God had selected a people who would be his. They would be his own. They would be his and that he would be theirs. And the world was going to find out and know just who God is because of his people. They were meant to be a light to the nations around them. And time and time again in the Old Testament, we see the purposes and the power of God working these massive and miraculous powers through God's people so that they and all the other nations around them will know that he is the Lord. God selected a man named Abraham to be the great patriarch. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they uh, populated and multiplied and they became an entire nation. And this, this nation of people were God's people. They were his people. He was their God. God loved the Jews. They were his. He called them as a whole his son. And he rescued them and he cared for them and he provided for them. And there are a number of times in the Old Testament where God's people just seem to be doing really quite well with God. And it's really, really wonderful. I've been reading through Joshua lately. And and something that I've noticed just this time around reading through Joshua is just how tight-knit God's people are to God in the book of Joshua. Like, there's some mistakes, sure, here and there. There are some people who do some silly things. But by and large, the people as a whole, they are wholeheartedly committed to God. And they are walking step by step, waiting on God for every single move. So God will say, go and attack this city and don't touch anything. Okay, just destroy everything. Nothing is yours to keep. Destroy everything. And they all do it except for one person. I mentioned him last week, Ahan. He, he was a baddie. And so he did that. But then next week, or the next time they come across the next city, God's like, take plunder. Go for it. Go for broke. And they do that as well. And then they, they, they keep reminding one another, hey, we are not walking away from God. We are not walking away from God. They are sticking so close to God. And it is wonderful reading through the book of Joshua. It's like, oh, Peace between God and his people is really quite wonderful, especially because I'm also reading through Jeremiah, and it's awful. Um, they just they, they seem to have totally forgotten God. It's amazing just how meticulous the Israelites are to sticking close to God. And then here John says, his own did not receive him. 
That's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking that his own people, whom he created, he chose, he walked with, he was faithful to, he provided for them, he cared for them, he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, Egypt. he was patient with them, he was the one who gave them the law, he was the one who, who taught them how to be his children and to stop being slaves and brought them into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. He was the one who did all of that and yet his own did not receive him. They were, of course, expecting a Messiah to come. Later on in the chapter, a bunch of Jews from Jerusalem, they're going to come out and they're going to interview John the Baptist because they're trying to work out, work out exactly who he is. And the first thing he says is, I'm not the Messiah. Like he knew that they were looking for the Messiah. So they were looking for a Messiah, but they had the wrong kinds of expectations. Jesus came as a king, but not the kind of king they were hoping for. They were hoping for a warrior king who would restore Israel's place amongst the nations. They were hoping for a hero who would come and destroy their enemies, namely the Romans and any other power that, was, uh, that had conquered them. Jesus came as a king, but not that kind of king. He came as the servant king who would lay down his life for them. A warrior who would restore God's people, not to their position amongst the nations, but he would restore God's people to himself. He would come as a hero who would not destroy their enemies like Rome, but he would come to destroy their enemies like sin and death. And this sheds light on our expectations of Jesus. As Christians, we should examine our expectations and our motivations in following Jesus. Because if there's anything other than in him was life, then we'll find ourselves severely disappointed in Jesus. A lot of people come to faith in Christ because they believe, they've been told, that Jesus' role is to fix some particular problem in their life. Maybe they've been promised that at some stage. Like, if you become a Christian, then you're going to be rich. If you become a Christian, sickness and illness is never going to be a problem for you again. Now, we can kind of say, oh, that's, that's silly to think that way, but we do have that in our back of our minds. Like, yeah, God, I know you're not meant to be, you're not going to make me rich, but I'd like to be above the poverty line. I'd like to be comfortable. Like, I don't, I don't need to be like, you know, have my own private jet rich. That's, I don't need that, God. But seriously, I would like to be able to pay my mortgage. And Jesus, you've got to give that to me, right? Or Jesus, like, I, I know that you're not going to promise me to be healthy all the time, but you just keep the bad ones away from me. Like, sure, I'll, I'll take the common cold, I'll take the flu, sprained ankles, you know, stubbed toes here and there. That's fine. I can handle that. But God, you're, you're going to keep the, the cancer away, right? That's, that's what Jesus is meant to do, right? See, if we come to Jesus going, these are my expectations, if they are anything other than in him was life, we're going to find ourselves disappointed because Jesus promises us life, eternal life, life to the full in him. It's a problem when we come to Jesus with the wrong expectations. It's not that our expectations are too high, our expectations are way too low. And we're reducing Jesus down down to, to our insignificant appetites. He won't have that. He's our king. He's, he came to be our king, and he wants to have his way over us, and that is good news for us. Israel as a whole had the wrong expectations, and so they rejected him. They were, of course, there were, of course, some who did receive Jesus from Israel, but not all. 
by and large, Israel rejected Jesus. And this is somewhat of a preview of for what is to come as you read through the Bible. Jesus came to the Jews first, but his mission ultimately was for the whole world. And this becomes abundantly clear as you read through the Gospels. You see here and there Jesus doing ministry to some Gentiles. And then when, uh, Acts, when you start reading Acts and the disciples, the Holy Spirit just spreads the disciples out throughout all the world. And the Gospel starts going to people who weren't Jews, who aren't Jews. And they start receiving Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit. And we see the Gospel spread out to all the world. Gentiles come to faith and they become included as God's people. Who God's people are is not someone you're born, a family that you're born into. It becomes the fact that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. So the world didn't recognize Jesus. His own people didn't receive him. John's describing for us these categories. But then he lays out what is to come, what becomes of those who do receive Jesus. He says this in verse 12. This is point number three, born of God. He says, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God to those who believe in his name. Now notice how John regards receiving Jesus and believing in his name as synonymous things. Receiving Jesus and believing in his name are the same thing to John. And this is important because if you remember what we said in week one, that John's purpose in writing this gospel was so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing we would have life. And we take that from John chapter 20, verse 31. And I'm hoping that as a church we'll become familiar with John chapter 20, verse 31, because in that verse, John wrote down, this is why I wrote this book. This is why I wrote this, this biography of Jesus, so that we would believe, so that you would all believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and that by believing we would have life. And so that word belief is incredibly important. And this here, that believing in his name, this is just the second time that John has used this word belief. We, we, talk, we looked at this last week, that uh, people, um, that, that John the Baptist came preaching the gospel, that also that all would believe in Jesus. He came as a witness to the light so that all would believe in Jesus. And here we're told that belief in Jesus' name and receiving Jesus are the same thing. And this is important, that believing in Jesus and receiving Jesus are the same thing because it tells us that Christianity is not a personal enterprise or a venture that we embark on. It's clearly that something that, that we have received from God. If you're a Christian, it's not because you've decided to go and knock on God's door and ask God if there's any room for you at the end, if there's any more grace for you. It's that God has held out his saving grace to you in the loving sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, and you have received the gift of salvation from God. You've put your faith in him, which your faith itself is a gift from God. It is from Jesus. Believing in God is receiving Jesus. And the reason why John says believing in his name is because it's trusting in the character of Jesus. That the name isn't just a title. It's not just the way people would call him to get his attention. The name stands for his character. 
Those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, are not those, uh, sorry, are those who have had their eyes open. They have seen the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ. They've seen the character of Jesus. They've seen who he is and what he stands for, who he, who he is. He is God. And they have realized that Jesus, Jesus is far more wonderful than anything else that we've got going on in our lives. And that in him is life. And they've opened up their hands to him by faith and they've received him. And the reason why we can talk about the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ is because this Jesus is actually God. John said this in the opening verse. He was with, in the beginning, he was with God and he was God. To behold Jesus is to behold the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God of the universe. Consider that God who put on flesh and went to the cross for our sake because of his great love for us, tortured for our sake, killed by those he came to save, the infinite, eternal, transcendent, immutable and sovereign God bled for you and for me. And if we think that's incredible, which it is, it really is wonderful. John takes us further. He says, To those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. It is incredible that we can be called the children of God. This is what should shift God's love for us away from being just a general kind of vague love over all people to being a specific, intentional, uh, intense particular personal love for each one of us that's the kind of love that God loves us with yes God loves the whole world in general that's absolutely true but the the love that makes us love him that saves us is a particular and personal and intense love and we know this because that's what parental love is That's what parental love is. I love my daughter and I love my sons, not because I have a vague general benevolence towards all people, but because they are mine. And my love for them is particular. My love for my children excludes others. It's personal and it's tailored for each one of them and it is intense. When, when my daughter Noah was born, she was our first child, I couldn't, this is going to sound so cheesy, but it's absolutely true, I couldn't believe my heart could love someone that much. Like it just, it rushed into my, love rushed into my heart as soon as I saw her tiny frame, like that second. It was, it was like trying to fill up a, a little paper cup with a fire hose and it just hit me like a physical, ugh, and I started crying and not in like the kind of happy, weepy, oh, look, it's crying. I was like, you know, ugly face crying, like, ah, and like Kirsty was lying on the bed completely wiped out, exhausted. Noah was there. She wasn't actually crying. She had her eyes open and was looking everywhere, which just freaked everyone in the room out. And me standing there going, ah, like it was so weird because I just couldn't, believe like oh the feeling of love just it was like a sledgehammer into my heart just absolutely pounded into my heart and I suddenly thought to myself oh I could kill someone like like my immediately my mind started crossing all the boundaries that I would be happy to cross in order to provide protection for her like I would just I, I would do anything for you I would I would jump in front of a train for you if that's what you needed like I would just do absolutely anything for you 
And then when my boys were born, I, I wouldn't actually kill anybody, just for the record. So, <laughs> unless my kids were at risk, and I'd, I'd, I'd get back to your notes. When my boys were born, I wasn't sure if I'd be, able to, I'd be willing to share that love with them. But when each of them were born, my heart exploded again and again. When each child was born, I had to divide my time between them. I had to divide, we had to divide our stuff between them. But I did not have to divide my love between them. My heart grew, and my love for each of them became no less intense. God's love for you is a father's love, a parental love. It is personal, it is particular, it is intense. If you're a Christian, you are not a face in the crowd. You are not just one of, in like one of the, I'm not sure if this is the right illustration, but I've been thinking about the Von Trapp family. Now, I haven't watched that movie, The Sound of Music, since I was a kid. So I, don't, I might be wrong about this, but my, my recollection of it is that the father was fairly distant from his kids and that they were just like, they were always over there on the other side of the room and he was always over here on this side of the room. And so that's not God's love for us, okay? Now, I might be wrong. If there's like a diehard Julie Andrews fan, you're like, how dare you attack her? Like, I'm sorry, okay? That's not, that's not my intention. But like God's love for you is not this vague general kind of like, I'm just going to love everybody in general and everyone's going to kind of get a, a portion of my love. No, his love for you is just as much as if you were the only one of his children. That's his intense, personal, wonderful love. And we need to receive this particular love from God. We need to receive that. Like, we need to accept that. Because we can, I, I dare say all of us would have no problem saying, yes, God loves everybody. But when it gets that real personal, particular love just for us, can we receive that? Holy Spirit, may you help us to receive that more. And if that's all that John wrote, that would be astounding. But he, he goes beyond it again. He says to those who receive him, he gave the right to be the children of God. This is how secure we become in God when we receive Jesus. Sonship is a gift and it's wonderful, but it's more than that. Sonship is a privilege and that is wonderful, but it's more than that. Sonship, John tells us, is a right. To, to those who believe in Jesus, we become entitled with this. Now, entitled, is a, it's, got a, it's a negative language, but this is how John's talking here. The word that he uses there for right, that he gave the right to be the children of God, it's often translated elsewhere as this word authority, this word exousian. The centurion in Matthew 8, he comes to Jesus asking Jesus to heal one of his servants and he says, I too am a man under exousian, under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. This word means to have authority, to claim such a title as a son or a daughter. We have the authority, we have the power, we have the right to claim a title as bold and grand as a child of God. Now, I find it hard to actually process this. Like this, I, I, I read this and I read this and my feelings go, oh, this is hard to see, hard to process this, right? But this is what God's word says. 
If you receive Jesus, you have a right to be called a child of God. And no one can take that away from you. Your parents can't take it away from you. Your, your friends can't take it away from you. The government can't take that away from you. The devil can't take that away from you. And get this, not even you can take that away from you. If you're in the habit of disqualifying yourself from the love of God because of, your, because of the sin in your heart, that's not humility. That is a defiance of the authority of God to name his children as he so desires. This is why we shouldn't... Uh, consider or rate or evaluate God's love for us based on our feelings. We should evaluate God's love for us based on his word. Because if we, if we evaluate God's love for us based on our feelings, how, how loved we feel, we're always going to be convinced that God despises us. That God, every time he's looking at us, he's scowling and going, again? But if we allow God's love to be evaluated for us by what God's word says then we'll be filled with a kind of robust assurance in the goodness of God and his fatherly love for us. And we need the Holy Spirit to do that for us. I mean, we sing this as kids, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because I felt that? Nope. For the Bible tells me so. Sing that song, kid, family. Sing that song. Like that's, that's, sing that song this afternoon. Don't sing it now. It might be a weird, weird with the person sitting next to you. But sing that song in your heart. Put it, plant it in your heart. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. The Bible has told us this. God's love for us. This doesn't mean that we don't have times and seasons where we doubt. I came across, across this quote by Charles Spurgeon this week, and Charles Spurgeon is often considered the, the prince of preachers. He says, I must confess here with sorrow that I have seasons of despondency and depression of spirit. And at such times I have doubted my interest in Christ, my calling, my election, my perseverance, my Savior's blood, and my Father's love. We aren't immune from these seasons. But this text tells us that our Father's arms are open wide to welcome us home at any point. To those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. By saying that though, to those who received him, John's creating a bit of a vacuum here. There's all these people, some received him, and there's the negative, some people didn't receive him. Some people didn't believe in his name. And this is where John gets about answering the question, why is that? Why is it that some people receive this and some people don't? Why is it that some people have their eyes opened and some do not? Why are some called his children and others are not? Well, continuing on with the child paradigm, John talks about this in terms of those who have been born of God. So let me read for you verse 13, but I'll, I'll include verse 12 again for the sake of seeing this sentence in its fullness. He says, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born, there's that parental fatherly love analogy still at work here, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. This cements for us in place the, the fact that the right to be a child of God is not something that is earned or merited and that belief in, in Jesus is receiving a gift. 
It's not setting out on a journey. It's receiving a gift. This cements in place the fact that we are not the, ent- the inventors or the initiators of the, our salvation. This is the work of God. In John it, verses one, chapter 1, verse 13, he looks at the children of God and he asks the question, how is this possible? How is this? And he goes through four options. Option one, is this because of natural descent? Is this because of blood? The reason why they're called the children of God is because they were born into the right family, born into the right ethnicity. Some people might claim to be that they are Christian because they were born uh, to a particular family, like I was raised in a Christian home, and that's, what, that's the reason why I'm saved. But this is not the case. You aren't born into this by natural descent. John says, no, this is not of natural descent. You aren't a believer because your parents are believers. You aren't a believer because you come from a place where belief is largely accepted. That's not, that's not the reason why some people believe. Option two, is this the will of the flesh? Is this something within us that makes us somewhat susceptible to belief? Like, is there a personality type? Is there something on the Myers-Briggs scale that makes someone more open to Christianity? John says, no, you're not a child of God because there's something in you that makes this work. Option three, is this the will of man? Is someone a child of God because they have weighed up the options and they've decided for themselves that they would follow Jesus? Was this the will of man? John says, no. Here's the thing. If if we have the right to be the children of God based on natural descent, based on the will of the flesh, based on uh, the will of man, then grace is not grace. It It would make God's love and our salvation dependent upon something that is within us and that we or that we are inclined to do or something that we have the potential to do. Friends, if God's love depended on us, on something that he saw in us, it would be lost by us. We would have lost it before we even came to church this morning. If my salvation came down to something that God saw in me, then I have no grounds for being sure that God loves me because whatever he sees in me can be lost by me. If God's love for me is based on something that I did or have the potential to do, then Christianity is not good news. It's a burden because now I have to keep God loving me. But that's not Christianity, and we know that because of what John says next. He says, the right to be the children of God are those who were born of God. Friends, a child is not born by their own initiative, but of their parents' initiative. God was the one who took the initiative to save us and to make us his children. We didn't come to God asking for for it. He came to us first and he adopted us as his own. I didn't love God, pursue God, choose God or accept God before he did any of that for me first. And this is why this is one of the most wonderful things for us to allow our hearts to dwell on. God chose us, not we, him. And this choice was not on some potential belief but on his free gift of grace, his free gift of grace, undeserved mercy and kindness towards us. 
God took the initiative to make us his children, and that was his will, his choice of free grace. He did not make his choice based on our heritage, based on our inclinations, based on our smarts, based on our wills, but upon his free and sovereign grace and will to do as he pleases and to choose as he pleases. But, but this is a, a, a big problem for a lot of people. It's, it's a massive stumbling block. It's, it, it can be a massive stumbling block because it, what it's doing, is it's shifting us out of the center of the universe and saying, no, you don't have autonomy here. You, you're not the one in charge here. It's a massive difficulty, not just for the world, but for many in the church. As we increasingly try to make our faith compatible with our own autonomy, we struggle to accept that God would do this for us. We'd much rather be in charge ourselves. But friends, we need to embrace this free gift of the unmerited favor of God. We need to allow this free grace of God, this free and undeserved kindness to penetrate deep into our hearts. We need to let this be the defining reality of our lives, that before anything else, we are those who have been saved by grace. Personal grace, intense love from the divine God of the universe. That should be the building blocks of our identity now. The, The thing that should define us. God's saving grace towards me. I did not deserve this. I I rallied against him. I railed against him. My eyes were closed by my sin. I could not see the glory of God. And then he opened my eyes. He opened my eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ on the cross. That Jesus Christ on the cross wasn't just a symbol of God's love for us, about how much he loved us. It was also his payment for our sin. That Jesus absorbed God's wrath for our sin. That, that someone has to pay for our sin, right? And it's either going to be us or it's going to be Jesus Christ and he's already paid for it. That's, that's what's on the cards for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, someone's going to have to pay for your sin. And the invitation of the gospel is to say, come and allow Jesus to pay for it. He's already paid for it. Come and let him put all your sins onto his shoulders, nailed to the cross as we heard earlier from that verse in Colossians. He took our sin and he nailed it to the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross, right? He became sin, who knew no sin, nailed to the cross. My sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. That's the invitation of Christianity. If you're here and you're not a believer, that's what's on offer for you. And our prayer, Holy Spirit, our prayer is that, you would, that his, he would open your eyes and, and for you to go, oh, that's wonderful. That's better than anything else I could ever conjure up in my life. So how do we do this? How do we receive Jesus? Like, what do we do in response? John's talking about those who have responded and, and the answer is, Empty hands. Really empty hands. We can't receive the gift if there's something else already in our hands. Friends, don't hedge your bets. Don't come to the cross with a little bit of self-righteousness in your hands. Don't come to the cross with a little bit of good works in your pocket. Don't come to the cross with a little bit of obedience and a little bit of a tithe. Don't come to the cross with your resume of your accomplishments. Don't come to the cross with your highlight reel. Don't come to the cross with a little bit of morality, a little bit of sanctified behavior, a a little bit of a good record, a history of obedience. 
Don't come to the cross saying, God, I never had sex before marriage. Don't come to the cross saying, God, I've always given. Don't come to the cross going, hey, God, look, I pray lots. Don't come to the God. Don't come to the cross saying, God, I serve a church. Look at all these things I do. That's hedging our bets. When we come to the cross with something in our hands, it, it makes us unable to receive Jesus because we're actually holding on to something else. We're, we're, we're saying, we, if we come with something, we're saying, I'm coming to receive grace, but just in case there's not enough, just in case his love for me is not enough, just in case I've somehow managed to, to out-sin God, I'm going to come with something that will make it a little bit easier just to guarantee my position in God's family. Something that will improve my case to show that I'm a good candidate for salvation. And if we do that, we'll completely undermine our salvation. We'll completely undermine it. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3, I also consider everything to be a loss. Everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul there in Philippians 3 had just gone through a huge list of all the things that he could have come to the cross with. And he says they are all dung, worthless. If we come to the cross with, without empty hands, with a little bit of good works, hoping that God will see our sincerity, we'll be unable to receive grace because it will no longer be, be grace. We might think we're carrying just a little button of it, but it's not a button, it's an anvil. It's heavy, it's awkward, and we're going, it's cumbersome, and we can't possibly receive anything else into our hands. If we are made the children of God because of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, then it's not grace, it's payment. If we think that we've received grace, if we think that we've received grace because of anything that we've done, because of anything that's within us, then we will be propped up with things that cannot hold us and will be crushed and buckle under the things that will crush us. But if we can acknowledge and put it deep into our hearts and build our lives upon and dunk our hearts in and saturate our minds in over and over again that we are made children of God, born of God, born of His initiative, not ours, but because of His grace, because of His love for us, because He came to us first, He laid down His life for us first because of His unbelievable love for us to save us from our sins to save us from the eternal punishment of our sins, to, to make us completely clean, to, to wipe away the record of our debt, wipe away the, the record of our, of our sin, and to actually make us righteous. We sang that song before, He died for us to make us righteous in God's eyes. Those aren't just words, Christian. If you are a believer, that's your reality. You are righteous in God's eyes. God looks at you and He sees... The, his son's perfect record of obedience on you. He's imputed Jesus' righteousness onto you. That's your reality now. I did none of those things. I, he was the one who chose me. He was the one who loved me. He was the one who reached out to me. He was the one who came to me. He was the one who, who reached out to me. I did none of those things before he did them for me. I did none of those things for God before he did them for me. And I was incapable of doing any of those things unless he did it for me first. Unless he enabled me by, my, by his spirit to do those things. Friends, if we, so friends, to receive Jesus, we've got to put everything out of our hands. 
we've got to drop it all. When we come to the cross, we come with nothing except for the sin that put Jesus on the cross. We've got to know that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God loves us with a personal, particular, intense love that makes us his children. We need to receive it and go, yeah, okay. That's right. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 